Welcome to the PSD Cast with your host, Jason Lumberg at Power Systems Design. Nuclear power is a complicated issue, to say the least. A highly public incident like the Fukushima Daiichi incident accident and past disasters like Three Mile Island and Chernobyl have reinforced a strong opposition movement. On the other hand, nuclear power is something of a PR problem. Many feel that nuclear is one of the safest and lowest risk industries in the world and that a stellar record should speak for itself. Even Fukushima, while a catastrophic environmental disaster, had a very low human cost with no fatalities, and though the World Health Organization predicted a marginal rise in cancers for those living closest to the power plant, it also expected no increases in miscarriages, stillbirths, or physical and mental disorders in babies born after the accident. So there appears to be at least a slight disparity between nuclear's actual record and its perceived image. And on the line to discuss this is Ed Halpin, the CEO and namesake of Halpin Leadership Industries. Ed's 35 years in the energy industry includes extensive experience in the nuclear sector, so he has a lot to say on this topic. Ed, welcome aboard. And I read somewhere that about 96% of U.S. nuclear capacity came online between 1970 and 1990, and setting aside the long construction and approval process, why do you think nuclear power or new sources of it has trickled to a virtual halt in the U.S.? Hey, Jason, and thanks for having me. Yeah, so in regard to the industry, uh, we know that this nation has a fondness, if you will, for fossil fuels. So coal, natural gas, etc. it's abundant and it's cheap and the nation is using it. So that's, that can be very tough to compete with. We also know that nuclear power from the standpoint of its benefit to society as a clean energy provider has not been necessarily acknowledged by lawmakers. And it's just starting. You start to see some movement in states like the New Jersey, New York, also Illinois in regard to zero emissions credits. But uh, that process is just starting. And so the acknowledgement of what nuclear can do for our society in generating clean energy um, really isn't there. It's also uh, highly uh, regulated. Um, it, as you said, it's, it's comp complex. You have to have strong subject matter expertise, highly regulated at the nuclear plants, which then can make it difficult to construct and to operate. But that said, we do see progress. Right? For example, Watts Bar Unit 2 was completed in 2016. We see Georgia Power with Vogel Units 3 and 4 coming to a close, they'll probably open in 2022. And the, uh, the government, Department of Energy, is uh, giving out uh, actual uh, grants in regard to new technology, such as Bill Gates' TerraPower, the Natrium Reactor, as well as X-Energy. And we see small modular reactors hitting the scene. Again, Northwest Energy is a leader in uh, aligning potential contracts with some of these vendors in order to build more nuclear. So, I think you're going to start to see nuclear on the rise as this nation and the world continues to fight climate change. Right, right. Now, what are some of the most important safety improvements made to nuclear uh, in the wake of Fukushima? Yeah, Jason, so we have learned a lot, and myself as well as 24 other chief nuclear officers ventured over to Japan after the accident happened in 2013. And we had an opportunity to sit down to talk to the leaders uh, from TEPCO, from Fukushima Daiichi, as well as Fukushima Daini. So all 25 of us chief nuclear officers in the United States 
as a team, ventured over to Japan to learn and to share our ideas. We toured the site, too, at Fukushima Daiichi as well as Daini. And I think one of the key lessons learned for us was actually Fukushima Daini, which means it's the second uh, station that TEPCO owned after Daiichi. Daiichi is where they had the accidents. Daini had the same wave, same earthquake. They were a little higher in elevation and were able to keep one source of offsite power, but they were able to act as a team and to think on their feet. They were very flexible, and we, they were able to actually cool the plant down. You never heard anything in regard to Daini. And so we took away as chief nuclear officers the whole concept of teamwork, collaboration, and really what we call flex on the fly. The United States implemented the flex program where we came back to the U.S. We, with great humility, thought through that we have to think through the unimaginable, that all of our power sources go away, and what would you do? We implemented flex. We have several uh, sets of equipment at each nuclear site such that if the installed safety equipment does go away due to some reason that wasn't necessarily imagined in the first place as a part of the design, that we would be able to use that, that equipment, which is flexible, mobile, uh, move it around site in order to uh, safely protect the core. And we thought in terms of not just having one set of equipment, but having multiple sets of equipment. And if that equipment goes away, we also have regional response centers that the industry in the United States has, one located in Tennessee and one located in Arizona. So if a nuclear plant exhausts all of its options, it has helped backing it up from the regional response centers. Interesting. We've discussed the global pandemic a lot on the show, and for, you know, for good reason. For well over a year, it's dominated every single facet of our lives. So what sort of impact, for better or worse, did COVID-19 have on the nuclear industry, and what can other industries learn from the nuclear sector in a post-pandemic world? Well, I would say that we've talked about this, that nuclear is highly regulated. There's a process and a procedure for everything. So what COVID did was, of course, it made it more difficult, but it didn't bring the nuclear industry to its knees. In fact, a nuclear power continued to operate safely and reliably, producing almost 20% of the electrical demand here in the United States for the 22nd year in a row. And that's a testimony to the teamwork and collaboration. Look, nuclear learned back when we had the, the H1N1 virus back in 2009 that viruses can affect your business. And we learned from that. We proceduralized what to do. And actually, when COVID-19 hit, uh, pulled those procedures out and implemented them such that we could operate safely and reliably. We're talking about thousands of contractor teammates traveling around the United States, conducting refueling outages, continuing the construction on Vogel Units 3 and 4, et cetera. So the team was able to apply lessons learned from the past, be a strong learning organization uh, in order to help work through the COVID-19 scenario. But that said, one of the great things about nuclear power and what others can learn from this industry is the focus on teamwork, collaboration, and building strong, emotionally safe cultures where people can speak up about really anything to anyone, voice their concerns, their opinions, and the focus on working together, especially 
through very difficult situations like COVID-19. Okay, now, now you, sort of, um, you sort of got into this a little bit, but can you explain what facilitative leadership is and how can it help to cultivate an emotionally and physically safe work environment? Absolutely, Jason. So facilitative leadership is actually a course from Interaction Associates that I've taught for the last 26 years. And what it is is it focuses on the definable, repeatable, observable behaviors that we can teach people that help to lubricate the wheels of collaboration, that help to create a strong, emotionally safe culture where people can speak up just about to anyone about any topic. You know, these are skills that we don't necessarily learn uh, in, in high school or in college. They're typically trial by error. And yet, you don't have to do that. Facilitative leadership teaches those skills. It helps you to tap the power of participation, to listen to very diverse input of people, their ideas, to gather them up and to work through them in order to make a decision that's a lasting decision that the team feels good about, where people want to step up and want to be involved in the process because they're respected, their ideas are listened to, um, but the, the results are, are just really good. So they want to be a part of that team. That's what facilitative leadership teaches. That's what I've taught for the last 26 years, and I'm thankful to Interaction Associates for introducing it. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's look at the bigger picture for a moment. Um, o- overall, how can the ener- energy industry foster better safety culture, perhaps drawing on the lessons of, of nuclear power and, and what would objectively have to be uh, considered a, a pretty stellar safety record. And it is stellar, and we're very proud of it. We don't take it for granted, uh, and we never get complacent. It's always about putting safety first. And I would say from a utility standpoint, the key is to focus on behaviors, to use tools like facilitative leadership to shape those behaviors uh, where the wheels of collaboration are lubricated and decisions are reached that last. Focus on those leadership behaviors that create a culture where people feel safe, as I said, talking about anything to anyone. It goes beyond engineered solutions. You need engineered solutions, but it is essential for executives, for leaders to focus on human behavior and teach people how to co-labor or work together. And I think that if we continue to do that, we'll form safety cultures, emotionally safe work environments that we're all proud of and that the workforce enjoys. Well, that sounds great. Thanks, Ed. On behalf of PSD, I want to thank you for your time. And to our audience, thanks for tuning in. Stay safe and healthy and have a great day.